Welcome back to another episode of Wicked Hot, everyone. This is John. And Kevin. And as always, we post on the Instagram before every new episode, giving you guys a shot at guessing what our topic would be. Kevin, what do we post and who got it, if anyone? Unfortunately, nobody got it, and I felt like this was an easy one. So we posted a picture of the green background with white text that you see before previews that says what the preview or what the film is rated. Right. We posted a green card of sorts for the MPAA. So this week we are covering the MPAA from essentially its inception to a couple facts about its corruption and different things and how it's kind of related into just filmmaking in general. Yep. And this week, guys, we have a bit of a different format. I will be going over most of the beginning parts of how the Hayes Code came about as to its inception, uh, all the way to the evolution where Kevin will be taking over a little bit more history, get into some corruption stuff, and uh, yeah, good episode your way. Get your bucket of popcorn. Let's get into it in three, two, one. Wicked smart, wicked cool, wicked fucking stupid, whatever the fuck is up, wicked. I'm baking like a twisted teaser. It's so hot here. My boy's wicked smart. Cause the boy is hotter than hot. He's hot, hot, hot. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? I know most of the history about the MPAA, but I don't know what came before the MPAA and how that was all sorted out. So that actually, it's interesting because it comes from what many people know as the Hays Code. So the Hays Code is a list of regulations placed by the MPAA as to how a movie was presented, things that did or did not belong in the silver screen. And it's seen as a censoring of art for the sake of quote-unquote moral values. And this is essentially the beginning of what we know as the MPAA rating system. But before we even get into the creation of the MPAA, or I think it was before 1950-something or so, the MPAA was known as the MPPDA. It's a long name. For people that don't know what the MPPDA stands for, it's still along the same lines, motion picture producers and distributors of America, rather than just motion picture association of America. I think it's longer to say the abbreviation of the name than the actual name. And it doesn't roll off the tongue at all. They weren't trying... MPPDA? Come on. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I suppose that's true. That's probably why I took... Then they're like, we can't keep going like this. It's way too much. We need to knock it down a letter. Yeah. But yeah, the MPPDA uh, was formed in 1922. And I want to take a brief look at the chairman who started it all, which is Will H. Hayes. So before coming, before becoming chairman of the MPPDA, Hayes was mostly involved with politics. He was involved with the Republican presidential candidate, future president, Warren G. Harding, ultimately becoming his campaign manager. He also concurrently served as the chairman of the Republican National Committee and became the postmaster general of the United States under 
Warren G. Harding. Damn. Something I've found in all of this is that every board member, every inception of a rating system having to do with film is like somebody deep-rooted in politics. Yes. It's crazy. Yeah. And by the way, this guy is not a movie guy. Yeah. Like he wasn't in, he wasn't someone that was involved with studios and such that became a politician. I think that may be more pro- prevalent in today's time with corporations and yeah. CEOs and stuff running for for office. This guy was a hardline conservative, wasn't involved in the filmmaking business because at the time the filmmaking business was a Kind of, I mean, it was it was a new thing. Stardom was a new thing, and those artistic people love to do things that hardline conservatives <laughs> are very much against, like yeah. doing drugs and drinking and and all that sp- stuff, especially during the the nineteen twenties. But yeah, so he's first involved with politics, becomes postmaster, and he was uh, William H Hayes was a leading member of the Presbyterian Church, and he. I guess he just had qualities that made the MPPDA absolutely in love with him. He was exactly the kind of candidate they were looking for. And mostly because he was someone in their eyes that had a dignified moral code that could enforce certain censorship. They're thinking this guy is a hardline conservative. He's a, he's a, he's a church going man. This is the kind of person that we need especially if you want to distribute within you know a greater part of the country and i'm sure even back then even east coast cities and stuff were probably had some sort of religious institutions that could that were at least pretty prevalent that could affect the censorship or distribution of a film yeah so speaking of the time let's dig into that we have in this in this era in history, the 1920s, it's post World War One America. Film industry is booming in popularity financially. They're really hitting uh, the marks with slapstick and vaudeville style actors. That's like the Charlie so, Chaplin, right? You have Charlie Chaplin, Laurel and Hardy, yeah. uh, Mary Pickford, Harry Langdon, and Roscoe Arbuckle, and more on him later. I just wanted to throw his name out. He's not really a known person. I think if people watch certain things, he's like a very generic looking white fat guy that was just in these silent films as kind of like a klutz. Okay. So but like pre, we'll, we'll, three stooges, like three stooges type thing. Right. Right. Okay. So before we get in, more into him, just, just off the actors, audiences love them. Wall Street invested in businesses related to the film industry, regardless of it, it could be a, a studio. It could be fucking lighting company, photography company, film company, anything that touched the film industry. Wall Street is absolutely loving in the 1920s and actors banded together. They were able to create their own production companies. Hollywood offered so many opportunities for jobs within the industry. It was just a good industry to be in. After World War One, just one that really was employing a lot of people. Yeah, because that was the time they were trying to really cheer people up from being so down for so long that, exactly. that I can I can tell why that industry just blew up in the twenties. Oh yeah, totally. And and you also have to think about it this way. I mean, there's a lot of it's or you think of getting in early. This is 
the time to get in where they're just hiring fucking anyone yeah to get into this industry so it was kind of like the the gold rush except it was more of like the film rush everyone wanted to get into film lots of jobs for for anything i'm not not actors uh but more just anything involving with the production so i know you're wondering what everything's going so well what was the tipping point for an association to be formed to quote unquote govern over how these films are produced so like i said i mentioned i previously mentioned an actor by the name of roscoe arbuckle i i don't expect you to know who he is but like i explained uh previously he's kind of like uh the, the how you said it priest three stooges yeah kind of comedy but not only that his on-screen persona was construed as a pervert <laughs> and unfortunately for our friend roscoe arbuckle he was connected to the death and rape of a young actress virginia rap during a party with other fellow actors and entertainers in the industry mm. this received national news and the public opinion, honestly, it kind of soured after the media painted a picture of Hollywood types as being involved in drunken orgies, murders, suicides, drug overdoses. It hasn't changed you, in a hundred years. Yeah, <laughs> you were cons you're basically a crazy person back then, and that's that's what makes a good actor is a crazy person. Yeah. I don't want a normal actor. Like Daniel Day-Lewis is the furthest from normal ever, and he's the best actor ever. <laughs> I know. It's weird when you see someone, an actor doing like normal people things. Yeah, like the grocery and, store And are something. successful. And are, and are successful, which is what throws me off. Yeah, yeah. This is kind of what made people start to think that there needs to be some sort of a regulation because people in Hollywood are absolutely going wild and doing whatever the hell they want and... Public opinion is just not good at this point. And that's kind of how the Hayes Code gets a bit of a bad reputation, in my opinion. It, it kind of is the insinuation that Will H. Hayes, he's out to censor movies to be in line with his own political and social views, mm. when in reality, its, it's sole existence may have actually been to save the film industry. So like I said, think about the time we're in. It's 1922. Prohibition has been in effect for four years. We had multiple states and counties. They had commissions specifically for, you know, this or, or boards for that. It just, there was always some sort of a commission that regulated over something, whether it be for the state yeah. or a local county. That was like the booming era of government regulation. Like, oh, yeah. everything was regulated. Everything was starting to get regulated. And it was only a matter of time before the film industry was regulated. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Think of it, yeah. Communication is definitely much better. You could get information from one part of the country to the other in, you know, quicker time than before. So now you have all these things that want to kind of segregate ideas as this is the right way to think, this is the wrong way to think. Yeah. Yeah, it all had to do with just keeping its citizens from towing the line of upstanding citizen to derelict in their eyes. So these specific boards for states and, and, and local counties, they were to, quote, regulate, license, and censor motion pictures as an exercise of police power to protect the social welfare of a community. 
end quote. Which, when you think about it, it is 100% going against freedom of speech. Yeah, it's, it's angering to listen to. Yeah. And interestingly enough, during World War I, the Supreme Court ruled in a 1915 case, which was the Mutual Film Corporation versus Industrial Commission of Ohio, that films were not protected on the First Amendment, leaving the regulation and censorship to be determined on the local level. So I Supreme Court, know. by the way, this, this still stands. I hope you know. This still is essentially a thing. And as we'll get into later, the MPAA was able to, in a way, kind of be the civil regulatory agency that just kind of came up and said, we'll, we'll be the ones to actually yeah. talk to the states and we'll set a, a ground rule as to who can be categorized into what section that can watch yeah. a film. They're giving like government power to a non-government entity. Which is right. very odd in this, especially in this time. It's like, oh yeah. yeah, you guys, this little group over here, you guys, you worry about censoring stuff and worry about movies, but that's it's so weird that the, that they give so much control to an outside, outside thing. Right. So uh, uh, they they honestly didn't really want to and didn't. It was more the MPAA later on down the line of its existence. They was able to talk to local governments, local censors, and basically come up with, hey, this is what we're going to adhere by. Can we all kind of agree and, and adopt this as something that is essentially law? Yeah. Which, which ended up happening. Like I said, it, it kind of got to this boiling point where it got this bad because not only of what that guy Roscoe Arbuckle had done to that actress, but his portrayal in the media and by extension, the rest of Hollywood uh, was, was terrible. So Hollywood knew that this was, we're not in a good spot right now. Like people don't want to support what we essentially stand for, which is hiring what is known as, Essentially, probably an enemy to public goodwill yep. is is a derelict of a vagabond. And we're going to go ahead and form the MPAA or the MPPDA at the time. And that's when they got Hayes as chairman because they knew this guy's religious. He has essentially pull and understanding of how... A, a general audience could consume this information. So I guess the MPPDA at the time, they were looking for the rated rated G. Yeah. Across, uh, you know, just yeah. that that's that was the only rating they were after. Which is funny because when you look at like older films, I think the highest rating it goes to is PG. Yeah, yeah, and that's I'll like fucking rated R, like penises and vaginas. Yeah. It's definite rated PG. Definite penetration. <laughs> I will talk about that later, but yeah, you are exactly right. Yeah. So Hayes' chairman, they just wanted to avoid the local censors. And there was an increasing fear within Hollywood that the federal government itself would begin regulation and censorship. So 
that the formation of the MPPDA with Hayes as chairman was more of a preemptive thing of he's got pull with the religious community and to be able to appeal to what a general audience would like. And the federal government won't be bothered by the yeah. fact. So they were trying to get, we're just kind of running it. wild. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it was either them or government. And they were like, ah, I'd rather do it myself. Yeah. Which is funny because Will H Hayes essentially was on the line of, yeah, this shouldn't be regulated by the federal government because that's closer towards fascism yeah. than it is to democracy. And his good intentions has basically made someone saying this is censored. Maybe not today, although maybe it is. Yeah. But as far as censorship is concerned, that was extremely heavy just because they didn't have the power to at that time be able to come up with a essential code or rating system that would appeal to whatever audience and also to the censor saying like, okay, this makes more sense. We're behind this. So the MPPDA was formed good intentions to provide guidelines for the artist to follow rather than risk censorship at the end, of course kind of happens anyway. And of course, to maintain the interest in wall street investment, because it's always, always, always about the money. Yep. So what's considered the Hayes code. Wasn't the first iteration of a set of guidelines. This first came when Will Hayes' 36, quote, don'ts and be carefuls, end <laughs> quote. But these, this list of don'ts and be carefuls, they were never really enforced, and there was no outline penalties. And I suppose the MPPDA just assumed that filmmakers would refrain from breaking the rules when they're like, hey, here's the, here are the rules. We don't know what the punishment is, but these are the rules now, so just follow them. <laughs> That's never going to work. <laughs> no. What's interesting about these rules, and I can kind of see where he thought maybe filmmakers would follow, he collaborated with the studio heads of MGM, Fox, and Paramount to come up with this list. And it was actually approved by the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, so I'm I'm not surprised by this because, I mean, that's essentially a regulation and the government they love loves those regulations. regulations. <laughs> but unsurprisingly, filmmakers didn't abide. And by 1929, only 20% of the scripts in Hollywood that were being made into movies were submitted to the newly formed Studio Relations Department within the MPPDA. Only 20% were submitted prior to the production of, fil of the film. So, so they didn't give a shit. You, yeah, no one cared. They basically went about their way in making a film. They thought that the, regulation, the regulatory agency was a joke. And, I mean, they didn't enforce anything. So 20% wasn't that. I'm honestly surprised it was that, that much. I, am I feel too. like 80-20 with no penalties is is but then again you have those those movies that are made that just like they're made and they automatically follow that guideline so it's like yeah why not submit it get their approval then you can market it with that that's true no that's a good point um even even with with people submitting it i mean despite all that hayes was 
he was determined to create a guideline that didn't strictly censor the films. Cause like I said, he thought it was kind of a violation of what it meant to be American. It's kind of fascist thinking yeah. to. It's funny. Cause it would have been fascist for the government to get involved and, and start this up, but they do it on their own. So it's inherently not fascist by definition, <laughs> but it because still it's is a capitalist. <laughs> yeah. But it still is. Yeah, it is. It's fascist it's, by mask of capitalism. Exactly. Because the government is happy with what the the corporation is doing, but the corporation if they weren't involved in the and the government was doing it, it's like immediately like yeah. censorship. Yeah, because you can't call it censorship if it's not the government doing it. Right. It's well, just regulation. Yeah. Yeah. Rules. <laughs> it's just just some rules. Well, that's like the same thing with the SEC, right? the Securities and Exchange Commission, that's a civil regulatory agency. Is it? It is. It reports to the federal government, but it's not a criminal. Oh, so you can't get, like, charges. Correct. You just get fined, just like the MPAA fines you. Right. Just saying. Similar. And there's a lot of corruption within fucking Wall Street. Yeah. You just get slaps on wrists. (laughs) Yeah. On March 31st, 1930, the production code, which is known as the Hayes Code, was released for the sole purpose of ensuring that, quote, no picture shall be produced which will lower the moral standards of those who see it. Hence, the sympathy of the audience should never be thrown to the side of crime, wrongdoing, evil, or sin. I found some of these band themes or actions interesting. And the explanation as to why they were banned. Oh, God. For, for instance, and this is great. This is 100% true. This is from the actual document. Murder couldn't be presented in a way that would inspire someone to imitate. Smuggling was not allowed to be shown. No sort of robberies could be shown. That includes lockpicking, safe cracking, robbing a bank. Anything that dealt with theft was not allowed to be shown. Use of liquor in American life, when not required by the plot or for proper characterization, was not to be shown. Okay. I want to take a little side tangent on this specific rule. Use of liquor in American life, when not required by the plot or for proper characterization. My question to you, Kevin, is this. What can determine proper characterization with the use of liquor? Because I have no fucking clue what that rule means. I think I know what it means. And it okay. I think it can only mean one thing. The proper use of characterization with liquor could only mean that you're an alcoholic. So it, it, yeah. it's basically saying you can only show alcohol if it's... If somebody's an alcoholic and like destroying their lives. <laughs> that's that's what I get from right. that. Yes, yes. That that makes perfect sense. So the rule, aka the censorship, is if you're gonna show alcohol, it's the worst kind of alcohol. Yeah. It's somebody. Maybe you'll have fun time. one scene, but then the next scene they're like deep in shit, fucking terrible. This is what happens when you drink alcohol. Fine, use of liquor, you're an alcoholic. As it relates to sex. The sanctity and institution of marriage was to be upheld. Casual sex 
was to be inferred as not a common or accepted thing. So, in regards to sex, sex scenes that aren't essential to the plot are banned. Okay. No sex trafficking or, and I found this term very interesting, white slavery. Really? Not slavery. <laughs> white slavery. White sla slavery. That is correct. That's really specific. <laughs> They're like, I, I'm down to see some slaves, but they better not be white. <laughs> I want my slaves any color but white. <laughs> Again, sign of the times, man. Sign of the fucking I, I see like times. the guy writing it down and he's like looking up to the manager and he's like, no slaves. And the guy's like, white slaves. Write it down. <laughs> no white slaves. Because they got to remember the good old times. Yep. Southern heritage. Let's not forget. <laughs> no white slaves. And also interracial anything was forbidden. No interracial stuff. Couldn't even talk to each other? Inter uh, interracial well, conversation? No this, is, no, this is as it relates to sex. Oh, okay. But this is still the sex thing, so no interracial sex. Back then it was like hand-holding and kissing. Like, kissing was a little much. <laughs> yeah. Back in the 20s. No, it was kind of like a hot and steamy thing. Like, ooh. Or like seeing an ankle. Or, or like just a look. Like, ju they just look at each other and you're like, damn, they want to fuck. <laughs> banned. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, I think this is also something that was interesting that was banned was the act of childbirth. Last I checked, the religious folks who kind of came up with this, they're big into the sex to only procreate. Right. You would think the miracle of childbirth would be something that would be celebrated, but no, 100% banned. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying they need to get like a full on shot. It's not what I'm saying. Like a close up? No. Right. But I mean, I think of any movie where there's like a pregnant scene where like they're like, oh, God, she's in labor. Like, push, push. And then they're like, oh. And you hear like the baby crying. Yeah. <laughs> and they grab the baby. And they're like, it's a boy or a girl. That's nice, I guess, if you like kids and, and, and the idea of having children. But they were just like, nope. So no they couldn't even. They couldn't even have like a scene in a delivery room. It was like, no, that wasn't allowed. I think the delivery room thing, but there was no, it was just like, maybe if a character was pregnant, the next scene, they were no longer pregnant and they had a child. Okay. You know what I'm saying? That's a little weird. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying I want to see like full on delivery room birth, but like if it adds some exposition, then you remember eighth grade. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Also, I mean, just off the childbirth thing, as a surprise to no one, nudity, not allowed, nor was suggestive dancing. <laughs> so. <laughs> that's subject. I, that's so subjective. It is so subjective. It's subjective that it's suggestive. So basically no dancing at all. It's like Footloose. <laughs> that's what the, that's what Footloose is about is, is. Against no no the dancing in movies. Code suggested <laughs> dancing. And for one of the final points, religion was never to be ridiculed, which comes as a surprise to absolutely no one, especially during 1930. Kevin, I want to pose this question to you. Do you think that this was a sign of the times where committees wanted the smallest amount of exposure 
as to what happens during a recession. Because in this case, 1930, stock market has already crashed. It's yeah. the Great Depression. And vices are rampant. Drugs, prostitution, other illegal behavior. All that shit usually skyrockets during low times for a country. And I'm thinking maybe it was more prevalent, obviously, because back then religion was definitely much more of a thing than yeah. it is now. And I think because of desperate times, certain people want to get in control to make sure that people kind of went on their own path. And I just kind of want your thoughts on this. Do you think that's kind of the sign of what was going on? Yeah, I definitely think so. Cause this guy, what was his name again? The H A. Well, H A. S. Hayes. Yeah, he yeah. he was in the right place at the right time. Like they wanted him, and he was like the stereotypical American, like white man. Like that was like yeah. And they thought like, oh, this this can be a thing. Like we could have this guy. His values basically put on everybody, and I I think it was a sign of the times because. Drugs are so rampant and you're in the middle of prohibition and there's so much debauch debauchery out there that <laughs> yeah. they want to like at least get something under control. Right. So like that that that's like their their way to get into the streets is like to regulate these movies. So people right. like maybe find God or stop drinking or stop having premarital sex. Like I think that's why they did that. Oh, because they... To stop them? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting thought. I don't know if... That's like saying if you didn't watch porn, you wouldn't want to have sex, though. No, but I also think that the the people that are in charge think that if you don't watch porn, you don't want to have sex. Like, I think that's what they think, and I think that's <laughs> what they thought back then, is, like, if they're not seeing this on screen they probably won't be tempted to do it or like they won't they won't see it on the grand scale cuz like back then even movies are still a big deal like sit watch going to watch a movie at a theater is a big deal yeah so like they get this like grand idea that you know booze is bad murder is bad sex is bad and they're like oh all right yeah maybe i maybe i do like jesus <laughs> Maybe I don't want to drink a, anymore. That's an amazing, yeah, that's a, no, that's an excellent point. Um, Is that a good theory, or am I just like... No, no, that's a good theory. I like it. I like it. So we'll jump four years later. 1934, the Production Code Administration, a newly created wing of the MPPDA, they made it a requirement to obtain their seal of approval before they were to even be released in the United States. So the PCA was run by a Catholic man, Joseph Breen. And he enforced the code alongside the Catholic Legion of Decency. Jesus. Yeah. Literally Jesus. <laughs> the Catholic Legion of Decency sounds like a group at like a over 55 condominium. To me, it sounds like a, like a branch of the KKK without calling themselves the KKK. Yeah. You can't, you can't say Catholic Legion and not assume that. Yeah. So Joseph Breen, he had the authority to change scripts, cut scenes entirely from the original film negative. Holy shit. So it's not like he edited it and you have 
the unedited, you know, un-Joseph Breen, un-Catholic. The director's cut. The director's cut in the fucking Paramount storage facility. Like this guy went, edited your movie and edited it from the original print. Damn. So there was no going back. Oof. That's rough. Yeah. I'm wondering all the scene. Like, imagine if, like, I don't know, Casablanca was made in the 1930s. It's like a hardcore fucking porn movie, and he comes in and it makes it like this masterpiece that wins Oscars <laughs> and is considered the best movie of all time. Uh, I when in reality, that. Humphrey Bogart was just fucking ham the entire, <laughs> just fucking dick out the whole movie. <laughs> That's some masterful editing. If anything, Joseph Breen in the Catholic Legion of Decency should be applauded for their beautiful editing techniques. Yeah. It's funny, even the advertising of films fell prey to the PCA, like in 1943's The Outlaw. A Howard Hughes film was denied a seal of approval because of the poster featuring and accentuating Jane Russell's cleavage. If you don't know Jane Russell, she is or was a very beautiful actress during the 40s. Quite a 40s smoke show, if you will. <laughs> and this moment, it's actually briefly touched on in Scorsese's The Aviator, which is the Howard Hughes biopic. And they were talking about, he's like, that uh, the big breasts, or they're, they're talking about her breasts or whatever. Yeah. And that is exactly what it was pointing to, is the MPAA's refusal to release the film because of that. That's crazy. How, how can they... How can a poster stop a movie from coming out? Yeah, I think it uh it was delayed like 2 or 3 years just for because of the poster? Just because of just because of the advertising campaign. Not just the poster, oh, but I'm okay. pretty sure the the trailer and everything. Oh. It wasn't like Howard Hughes presents tits and it's just <laughs> <laughs> it's just her her Jane Russell's tits, just the tits on the picture and nothing <laughs> else. The movie's The Outlaw, it's about like a western shootout style and it's just like come and see western titties. Despite the strict enforcement of the code, though, filmmakers found ways to get around the rules, as did Otto Preminger for his 1955 film The Man with the Golden Arm, starring Frank Sinatra, which heavily featured substance abuse. And it's funny because the PCA didn't want to release this, which I thought was strange because they were talking specifically about a drug addict and the fact that people get addicted to drugs and their life's pretty fucked up. It was probably the most real portrayal, especially during the fifties. I mean, you know what kind of drugs it was? So it, the drug is actually never named, but heroin is what is strongly implied. Okay. This is according to the plot synopsis. Okay. So I guess they didn't want to name the drug back then, which I feel like if you named the drug back then, there was no way this was getting released. And I'm surprised that despite the PCA not giving their seal of approval, the film was still released. Basically happened because the production company, which was United Artists, which was founded... By the way, United Artists, you know this production company, right? Yes. It was founded by Charlie Chaplin and all those other 20s actors that I had mentioned before. They just formed their own production agency, which I had no idea about, which is fucking crazy. I knew Charlie Chaplin did. I didn't know he had uh, actor like actor partners. Yeah, it was Charlie Chaplin, Harry Langdon, and Mary Pickford. 
which were all actresses mm, okay. or actors and actresses at the time. United Artists had a significant investment in the film, and so they were a member of the MPAA, and they pulled out and decided to distribute the film because they already had a shit ton of money tied up in the film. The MPAA fined them $25,000, and at this moment, it kind of marked a weakening point of the MPAA's production code administration as the film went on to be highly rated. Sinatra was nominated for Best Actor for his portrayal in the 1955 film. And that is basically the beginning of the end for the Hayes Code and the transformation of the MPAA as Kevin will cover. So your uh, topic kind of ended around 1945. So that was right around the time Hayes stepped down from his position they ended up hiring this uh, new president, Eric Johnston, and that was the year, 1945, that they rebranded into the Motion Picture Association of America, MPAA, as we know it today. In 1956, Johnston oversaw the first major revision to the production code since it was created in 1930. It basically allowed the use of narcotics and abortion as long as it was within the limits of good taste, quote-unquote. How's abortion in good taste? <laughs> I have no idea. Maybe this, this new uh, Eric Johnston was a little <laughs> liberal. Also, um, it added some new rules to the code. It outlawed blasphemy and mercy killings. I didn't know there was a whole lot of mercy killings in, in films <laughs> back in the, in the what 40s. Can, what's considered a mercy killing? Like, this guy suffered... Yeah, and that like you know, pillow over the face in in the in the hospital true. bed, and yeah. a mercy killing is worse than a normal murder. I guess so. <laughs> maybe it, it, it maybe going back to uh, your your thing, it was just meant to stop people from trying to want to do it. I guess. Yeah, I guess that's a more realistic have, thing. A mercy killing in your scenario yeah. than a straight up murder is. In 1963, Johnston died of a stroke. And that left the MPA without a president for a while. Uh, actually, about three years. Oh, shit. That's a long time. Until enter Jack Valenti. You can't really talk about the MPAA without talking about Valenti. He is like basically the godfather of the MPAA and the rating system in, in general. Going back to politics again, this guy is like deep involved in politics at the time before he becomes the president. Um, he served as the liaison uh, with the news media during JFK's visit to Dallas when he was shot. Oh, shit. He was actually in the motorcade at the same time. No way. Yeah, yeah. So after uh, Johnson becomes president, he recruits Valenti to be uh, a member of his cabinet, like a special assistant. And he actually lived in the White House for the first two months of Johnson's presidency. In 1966, Valenti, at the insistence of Universal Studios chief Lou Wasserman, and with Lyndon Johnson's consent, uh, he became the president of the MPAA. Dude, it's, it's crazy that the two essentially innovators, the one that brought out the most change within the MPAA, were both the real big-time politician people. Yeah, and even uh, even after he got out of politics he was still a lobbyist 
Uh, he basically turned the MPAA into a lobbying group. Yeah, I mean, it's essentially like basically a pseudo federal agency. Yeah, it's at, it's so it's a trade association. That's what they call it. Um, All right, that makes sense for the FTC stuff then. Yeah, so so it's basically a, a, like you said, a pseudo pseudo government entity that has roots in government, being a lobby lobbying group, and also being, you know, the the director right. or the CEO is coming from politics. Right. So po- politicians had their hand in the MPA since its inception. Yeah, I mean, if you think about federal regulatory agencies versus the MPAA versus the FDA. They're still yeah. regulating things based on a code. And right. it's crazy right. that the MPA can kind of just get away with how it's operated, how its directors are politicians, essentially. And yeah. it's just considered, oh, yeah, that's just the, the rating system in Hollywood. Yeah. As you kind of mentioned, the the studios were the ones that resided over this board. And when the MPAA was formed, it was the same situation. It was run by, as they called it, the Big Eight Film Studios. So that was a company called Lowe's. And if you've never heard of Lowe's, uh, they're the oldest production company in America. And they also own theater chains, the oldest theater chain in the country. Oh, like Lowe's Theaters? Yeah. That's a production company? I had no idea. It is, yeah. It is also a production company. But they merged with... Uh, MGM when they all merged together and the theater chain merged into AMC after that so that's who Lowe's is no shit yeah so the AMC actually still uses the Lowe's logo but AMC owns it okay so wait is AMC just an amalgamation of multiple theater chains is that why it's called American Movie Corporation no no, it's its own company. It just it just owns Lowe's now. Okay. Okay. So it got absorbed. Like the production studio got absorbed into MGM and the theater chain got absorbed into AMC. Okay, but MGM's part of Sony now. So you're right. saying that so Lowe's now, the, yeah, production he, company is Sony and then the Lowe's theater company is AMC. AMC so they basically yeah, like yeah. kind of salvaged pieces of the company. Right, and actually, Lowe's the the guy that owned the Lowe's production studio was the main guy behind MGM. He just didn't use his name in the title. Oh shit! Yeah, so it was uh, the big eight was Lowe's, Paramount, Twentieth Century Fox, Universal Studios, Warner Brothers, Columbia Pictures, United Artists, and RKO Pictures, who was uh, defunct in '86 or right. something. So those are like the biggest film studios at the time and of all time. Yes, yes. And they're most of them are still around or have been absorbed by another larger company, production studio. Now the, the MPAA is composed of seven studios, which is 20th Century Fox, Paramount, Sony Pictures, Universal Studios, Walt Disney Studios, Warner Brothers, and Netflix. Netflix? Yeah, I thought that was interesting, that too. That is interesting. So the most important job of the MPAA or what they're most known for is the replacement of the Hayes Code and the implementation of a rating system. Uh, Valenti like completely destroyed the production code or the Hayes Code because he even said that it 
bared the resemblance of censorship or government interference in uh, First Amendment speech, which is kind of funny because it still does this today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so filmmakers were pushing the the boundaries of the Hayes Code, so they they completely abolished it and came up with the rating system in 1968, and it was uh, G rated G rated M for mature. R rating for restricted for no person under 16 unless accompanied by a guardian, and then X for no one under 16 admitted. Okay. And I'm assuming that was mostly regulated towards porn, which is why we get the triple X movies. Yes. Yeah, I will talk about that. But yes. Yeah, you're correct. I love the rated M for mature. The way you said it, by the way, it reminded me of the old video game commercials. commercials. Rated M for mature. Yeah, yeah. So in 1970 to 1972, they changed the rating system again. It was G. And then they added GP instead of M, which was general guidance or parental guidance. What the fuck? So um, M mature went to PG? It went to GP. <laughs> it's not even PG yet. It's GP. But it's on the and same level. The but it's on the same level. It is, yeah. yeah. So mature. So people around that time thought mature was too mature sounding, I guess. <laughs> So if you say mature, you're thinking like tits and ass and, and stuff. <laughs> when I think mature, I'm thinking like Call of Duty fucking murder it's hard everyone, to get the video game, you know? Yeah. It's hard to get the video game thing out of Rather your head. Rather than PG. What's PG? Like fucking Frozen? I don't know. So they they had GP, uh, R rating, but they raised the H to 17, and then they still kept the X. Um, same thing. 17. Can't, can't see Holy it. Holy shit. So you're telling me rated R, the 17 rule, has been around since the 70s? Yeah, 1970. That's insane. Yeah. So 1972 to 1984, that's when they changed from GP to PG. Okay. At this time, too, around the 70s, uh, mid-70s, Jack voiced his concern about VCRs specifically was the Sony Betamax because it was very easy to copy them. So that was kind of the MPAA's segue into copyright law and lobbying for copyright law interesting all the way back in the 70s in 1975 uh jack established the film security office which basically dealt with anti-piracy and uh recovering unauthorized recordings of films but they did get the fbi involved with that because you know how you always have like the fbi warning like it's the fbi specifically saying like don't fucking copy this movie yeah i think that portion of the mpaa has moved more towards lobbying and the fbi has taken over actually like hunting down the piracy people yeah the pirates call them what they are if you're you're gonna if you're gonna do piracy you gotta be a pirate that's that's why you do it in 1984 they added the pg-13 rating okay and it's kind of funny because it's this all stemmed from the outrage of indiana jones and the temple of doom yeah, because rated it was PG. rated PG. Yeah. yeah. So, John, I'm going to ask you this question. 1984. Can you name the first PG-13 movie? 1984? Yeah. Was it the animated Transformers movie? No, it was okay. not. So this is August 10th, 1984, Red Dawn. First PG-13 movie. The Patrick Swayze movie? Yeah, Charlie Sheen, Patrick Swayze. Where, like, the Russians invade the United States, right? Yeah. 
That was the first PG-13 movie. Yeah, it was. Yeah, 1984. I will say, I think it's weird without having PG-13 because PG... Wait, Shrek is PG. Yeah. So you're putting Shrek and then... Yeah, but you also got to understand that DreamWorks did Shrek and DreamWorks is not a part of the MPAA. So they still have to submit their stuff to them, but they're not a member of it. So you got to... DreamWorks movie is going to get a different rating than maybe a Pixar Disney movie will get because Disney's on the the board of the MPAA. I see. Okay. All right. Around this time, like the late 80s, early 90s, the X rating was starting to prove to be a problem for the MPAA. They didn't trademark it. And porn was rampantly using that rating to like market all of their porn. They clearly succeeded because X... That's a sought-after rating. And if you're yeah. giving me an X rating, it has to be fucking some nasty shit. Yeah. yeah. And it's kind of funny because the films that came out that were rated X were also associated with porn, even though they weren't. So films like Midnight Cowboy and Clockwork Orange, all rated X, but the public thought they were porn, so they it didn't do well in the theaters. Although in... in, in- the defense of the rated X, there is a brutal rape scene in Clockwork Orange. That is true. I could see why that is rated X. But just to like a little set, NC-17 is just such a bitch rating. You gotta go X. Don't do NC-17. That's way too long. That's what I'm thinking too. So in 1990, that was actually the last time that we got a rating change. And that's what we have today. The G, PG, PG PG-13, R, and they changed X to NC-17. So I want to go over a few reasons why the MPAA specifically, in even in modern time, is a complete joke and is completely corrupt. In Jack Valenti's autobiography, he basically says that he didn't want to use or didn't want to do the Hayes Code because... It was censorship, kind of like I mentioned earlier. Yeah. With the inception of X and NC-17, it was basically the kiss of death for movies. So they couldn't release X and NC-17 movies in theaters. Okay. Actually, the first movie that was released in theaters in 1995, rated NC-17, was Showgirls. Really? Yeah, it became the first widely distributed Uh, NC-17 rated movie. But the NC-17 rating killed the movie. It grossed 45% of its $45 million budget and basically ruined Jesse Spano's acting career. Because they thought it was a porn? Yeah, it didn't get the marketing that it would have got if it was an R-rated movie. So with NC-17, they can't market it to certain audiences like they can't run commercials during certain times they can't run it in papers so they had they they weren't able to market it very well another mark they have against them is that the MPAA is owned by all the big studios in Hollywood and it basically exists to shut down independent films like I said the MPAA is comprised of the seven big studios so naturally to release a movie in America it has to be rated by the MPAA. A lot of studios are not involved with the MPAA, so they get to decide 
what movies get what ratings. Let me ask you this. I'm assuming for like, you remember buying DVDs where it's like the unrated edition. Yeah. That means they just didn't submit that cut. Right. Yeah. And you can see like in like if Step Brothers, the unrated version of Step Brothers has a, a graphic sex scene in it. Right. Like they knew that wasn't going to get approved. And they just wouldn't so they cut it out. Do you have to pay for yeah, each or the submission? No. Okay. So how, and this is a separate question. How is it that you're allowed to get away with submitting, not submitting a film and making someone buy the DVD? Not making someone, but having it available to the general public to purchase, just as in going to a, a movie theater, it's available for the general public to purchase. I'm choosing to go see this in the theater versus I'm choosing to purchase this to watch at home. Because I think the the market for unrated DVDs is, I guess it's a lot easier to get it into a retail store than to get it onto a theater screen. Okay. Because, you know, there's a finite number of theater screens, and yeah, there's a finite number of square footage, but you can fit a lot more DVDs than you can inside of a 20-screen theater. Yeah, no, that's a good that's a good point. So it makes sense for them to sell both versions of it or you know, double pack with both of them on it. It just makes sense for them to do that because people are, it's obvious that people are searching them out because they wouldn't sell them if people weren't trying to search them out, which even bodes more to the absurdity of the entire rating system. Yeah. The MPAA like specifically, um, tries to ban or tries to get away from any sexual activity in movies. Uh, even indie films that try to use sexuality as an art form or some type of art, um, they have a harder time getting a decent rating and they usually get an NC-17 rating. Even Clerks actually got an NC-17 rating when it was released. Right, and they got an NC-17 rating. They did get an NC-17 until a major studio bought them. It was downgraded to an R rating. Interesting. Another, I guess, problem they have with this board is that there's no face of the board. I mean, you have the CEO, and that's it. It's it's a secretive organization, basically like Hydra. Like, nobody knows who's <laughs> pulling the strings or doing anything. Guarantee you it's the same people who run the Academy. Probably is. And those are all faceless envelopes. Yeah. It's funny because Valenti made this organization in its rules protect people that are members of the MPAA from outside influence. They didn't want people bribing, you know, board members, which I I understand, but if you think about it, politicians and judges everybody knows who they are. We vote on them. We see their face every day. So why is why is it okay for a judge to like see his face and know who he is? And not this MPAA. It doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. Like, nobody's kicking down the MPAA's door, you know, threatening them to lower the rating a little bit. You know what I think why? And I'm going to make a little bit of a uh, comparison to the 
Edgar Wright film, Hot Fuzz. Uh-huh. The MPAA is that little town, Sanford, that has the cult to make sure that it's a perfect, beautiful community that wins <laughs> Village of the Year every time. And that's the MPAA. I guarantee you the MPAA meetings are them all meeting in some sort of uh, ruins or abandoned something with yeah. hoods and flashlights underneath their chin determining what rating a movie's going to get. Yeah. That's that's probably exactly. exactly what it is. Exactly. And and the the people in the MPAA other than the president who is widely known um nobody knows who they are. So in 2005 a filmmaker by the name of Kirby Dick tried to find out the identity of the members for his documentary and it's a great documentary it's called this film is not yet rated okay so they hired a private investigator and went after anyone that came out of the mpaa building they basically followed him for weeks jesus how is that not harassment well it's not harassment if you don't know about it what do you mean if you don't know about it they they didn't know that they were being followed until okay okay the documentary was submitted to the mpaa for a rating Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Big mind fuck if you're uh, an MPAA member at that time. <laughs> totally. The only person who they knew at the time was Joan Graves. She was the uh, leader of the Raiders at the MPAA. So they parked outside the building, waited for people to come out. They even went as far as to follow people home and dig through their trash, which I found out is not illegal. You can do that if it's on the if it's on you the street. You can do that, especially if you're a private investigator. In the trash, they found some rating forms. So from that, they followed that person and see who they congregated with outside in the parking lot. And they basically got an entire roster of the MPAA's raiders. So are these raiders, are they people that work normal jobs or is their job to be a raider for the MPAA? Because I'm thinking as like a profession, if you have a normal profession and then you have to watch all these fucking movies and decide on a rating, there's just not enough time in the day. Like your yeah. job has so, to be just movies. Yeah. That that kind of segues me into this. Uh, the next one is that the raters are the most unqualified people to rate movies on the planet. So when the 2005 documentary came out, they did some background research on who the Raiders were. And it was upper middle class, and I emphasize the word upper, people living in San Fernando Valley. They had no children, and almost all of them had been on the board more than seven years, despite a rule that you can't be on the board more than seven years. Interesting. It's like a rich focus group, like how they do the... The pre-screenings yeah. that screw up the movies because the yeah. test audience doesn't like it. The test audience for this is a bunch of... But upper class without children, I would think that they would be a little bit more liberal with the way they rate things. I guess the the problem is that you need somebody with some perspective on kids to rate movies that are sp- specifically for kids. So that was kind of the shocking part was that they didn't have any... They didn't have any people with kids on the board. They didn't have any experts in child development on the board, which every European rating system has somebody on the board with child development expertise. Another checkmark they have against them is that the appeals process is completely fucked. The 
the directors of the eight major studios or the seven major studios that are in the MPAA, they pretty much have access to the MPAA members at all times. If you're a director from an indie studio or a studio that's not involved in the MPAA, you cannot talk to the MPAA members. Right, right. So you have to submit a form. You have to appeal the process. And basically the appeals process is directors can't go in front of the board unless you're a member of the MPAA. You're, you don't get a phone call explaining why your movie was rated the way it was, right. which is usually not the case. If you're a member, they explain what's wrong with it, what you need to cut, and w- what you need to do to get the rating that you requested. Right. So films have three or four raters making the decision on a rating, and Charles Rivkin, the CEO, breaks the tie, and he actually has absolute veto power over any rating. And Chris Rifkin is the current CEO of the MPAA, and he is, I don't know if you know who he is, but he's I don't. heavily in politics. He was Assistant Secretary of State to the Economic and Business Affairs. Uh, he was, That was during the Obama administration. He was the ambassador to France and the ambassador to Monaco. So he's like heavily into politics as well. As every other CEO of the MPA. Also, ambassador to Monaco, that's like ambassador to like the 1% of 1% countries. Yes. <laughs> really so, is, yeah, yeah I'm, not, I'm not very confident right now. So the, the part that's fucked about it is if you don't like the rating, you can appeal it. But the appeals board is basically the same members. It's not the exact same members, but it's the same people. Right. It's people from the industry, from those movies or from those studios that they don't really want to cross the MPAA and overturn an appeal. So you're lucky if you, first of all, if you even hear from them. Right. And you're lucky if you, if you get it overchanged, there's no way you'll get it overturned. Jesus. Kind of like I talked about MPAA hates sex of any, any kind. And John kind of touched on it too. Um, and it's kind of funny cause like this, they ran some studies. They had an independent firm run studies and they determined that PG 13 movies and R rated movies violence is the exact same. There's no change from violence in PG 13 to really? R rated movies. Yep. Oh, so the violence doesn't affect the R rating. They say it does, but it, it truly doesn't. That's interesting that you say that because I know that, and not to bring video games into this, but I, I always think of this one specific game left for dead which was a zombie game and the the cover of the game was a fucked up like zombie hand and the u.s perfectly okay violence is perfectly okay in other countries it's like the silhouette of a hand so it's like that really extreme graphic violence is the thing that's censored in europe whereas sex there is much more of a not such a taboo subject as it, I guess maybe not, maybe not in the United States, a taboo subject, but I feel like openly talking about it is taboo. Obviously there's a lot of subtleties within American advertisement of, you know, sex sells, but it's not explicitly yeah. saying sex. It's the subliminal mis- message of, of sex. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, it's like the complete opposite over in Europe. 
Like they're they're completely fine with the sex. It's the violence they don't like. Here it's the sex. Yeah. And in in the documentary, this film is not yet rated. Uh, the a uh, filmmaker actually said that the MPAA called and told them they needed to cut a sex scene because it had too many thrusts. <laughs> <laughs> Dead serious. What's too it many? had eleven what? thrusts. Eleven. Eleven is too many. Was it like one too many, or I'm guessing so. Maybe ten is the max. A nice solid round number like ten. I hope ten is the max because if it's anything less than that, that's that's like virgin sex. Like the minute he has sex, the minute <laughs> it goes in, it's it's done. It's over. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Also with this. Outside independent study, they found that gay films were automatically R-rated, whether there was sex or swearing or anything. Gay films were automatically R-rated. That's interesting. Is there still any sort of evidence that religious groups are part of the MPAA? There is no evidence of that in current time, but you know that oh, shit still it happens. Has like you to know, be. there's. Scientologists and and Christians, like you know, they're running that. Show. Yeah, because I mean, if you think about it, the sex thing, it's almost as if when they said you know eleven thrusts is too much, I feel like one thrust is basically what they want. It's like very sexually repressive things, which I'm not surprised yeah. about the sex thing, and I'm not surprised about the gay thing, because for the most part, anyone that's like, not anyone. But for those like crazy people that do like the gay conversion things, yeah, I feel like it's ninety percent those people are gay themselves and they just hate themselves. I think so. <laughs> yeah. I definitely think so. So the sex that was in movies was only straight male, like from the male's perspective, and the MPAA, as it kind of com- comes out in this documentary, cuts a lot of sex scenes that are from the point of view or from the perspective of the female where like the female actually has a nice time uh basically it's like unless it's a scene where the 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 girl gets topless and dances around they don't want to see it they're like girl on girl or get the fuck out of (laughs) here so it's basically uh 99 out of 100 movies is the exact same scenario male from their perspective, and you get no deviation from that. It's a lot of the scenes from this film is not yet rated, uh, where they talk about sex scenes being cut, were specifically female uh, perspective or female-centric scenes that DMPAA did not like. What films did they feature that have that? It was a lot of indie movies. It wasn't a bunch of mainstream stuff. Any indie movies that I would know? For research purposes. Probably not. No. (laughs) No, probably not. (laughs) Like I said before, when Kirby was submitting his uh, film to the MPAA, that's when they found out they were being followed or were found out, I guess. So that actually spurred the MPAA to come up with, I guess, a plan to be more transparent. Uh, They announced after the movie came out that they were promising to come clean about their membership and the rules because previously there have there were no rules there was no tests there was no nothing to be an MPAA member you just had to basically show up and be upper middle class 
And these people had um, no connection to the movie or the film industry at all? No, not really. Like what was like a normal occupation? Just like. Well, that was their occupation. MPAA was their occupation. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's not like a on the side thing. It's like it's its own job. Interesting. Yeah. So they come out with this plan to be more transparent and. Basically, 13 years after this documentary comes out, we still don't know anything about the MPAA. All the members have changed. Nobody knows who they are. And we still don't know how movies are rated or why a movie is rated the way that it is, as opposed to a different movie. That is absolutely insane. So are these do these people have any connection to people that are in the film industry? Because there must be a way for people to join. Is it scattered across the country or is it just located within California? It's it, Yeah, it is in California. Okay. So the office, mainly um, in San Fernando Valley, like everyone pretty much lives in San Fernando Valley, which is an upper middle class uh, California. There isn't really a connection to uh, from the employees of the MPAA to the production companies. Right, right. So, Kevin, I guess from what we can see is that the MPAA is definitely still, in a sense, operating as it was when it was founded. It's definitely censorship without being censorship because it's not fed. Right. So um, it, 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 it's going to be interesting to see what, how it, if there's going to be any sort of evolution because, honestly, after doing the research and, and learning about this topic, Every time I'm going to see that green card right before a trailer. Yep. It in a, in a sense it's this is more of an extreme version but it's if you were in North Korea and it's like this commercial is brought to you by like the People's Republic of or People's Democratic Republic of Korea. Or yeah. some Soviet Union shit where it's like clearly censored like this is approved by the government's seal. Yeah. But without being government. It's basically the same thing without being government. Right. Yep. And it's crazy that it it's crazy that the movie the documentary this film is not yet rated did not destroy the MPAA cuz they they brought out a lot of shit shady shit that the MPAA does and continues to do and nobody calls them on it. Yeah, and I would suggest for everyone that's listening to definitely take it uh go ahead and watch this film is not yet rated because I feel like it really went under the radar, and that's probably why. Maybe people should l- look did. at this more and, and really see how fucked up rating system can be, where, where we just kind of yeah. just sit there and accept it. Like, okay, like yeah, make, it, it has no bearing on me when I go to the theater. Oh, this movie's rated R, PG-13. I don't really care. But yeah. for, for other people, it, it you would care, and that's essentially kind of fucked up that, that they are allowed to get away with that. Yeah, and it, every time I'm at the theater and I see, you know, especially a movie that's not rated R, like a PG-13 or PG movie, I'm always wondering in the back of my mind, what am I not getting that the filmmaker intended me to get that was cut from the movie? Right, right. It's not necessarily like that with R movies because they usually make them tailored to be R. It's very rare that an R, a major studio R movie gets an NC-17 rating right. to begin right. with. But just the fact that that I know in the back of my mind that something has been cut out of this, that some 
asshole fuck in San Fernando Valley thought should be cut because it was too many thrust. Pisses me off. <laughs> Give us more thrusts, people. So, John, I have a question for you. Oh, turn of the tables yeah. this week. Yeah. So we talked about PG and PG thirteen. Um, so I want to give you, I want to ask you this: What is the most violent or fucked up PG movie on this list? Okay, okay, I'll give you a list. All right, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which we know was the catalyst for the PG thirteen right. rating. Gremlins, Jaws, The Poltergeist. It's 1,000 upon 1,000% The Poltergeist. Yes. There's just so many fucked up things in that movie. That movie's rated R, first of all. Fuck off PG-13. That movie's rated R. Yeah. I had a hard time believing that it was a PG movie. Like, to, to, if that were released today, they did actually make a remake of Poltergeist that was almost the same, and it was an R-rated movie. Yeah, that one was with uh, fucking... Sam Rockwell. Well, thank you guys so much again for sticking around, listening to this week's episode of Wicked Hot Movie Mayhem. As always, if you guys want to check us out on any other platform, we're available on Spotify now, Google Play, iTunes, uh, iTunes Stitcher, Stitcher Radio, Pocket Cast, anywhere that podcasts can possibly be found, plus YouTube. Yeah, we're, we're literally on everything. And same thing with our social media, guys. Give us, give us some love on social media. Give us a follow, subscribe, like, whatever the fuck it is on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. We don't have Snapchat, but it's at Wicked Hot Talk. Give us some shouts on, on, on this week's episode. Let us know how we're doing. Let us know your thoughts on the APAA. And honestly, I think we may be doing a little bit of a follow-up to this because there's just so many intricacies of the MPAA that just... I don't know. I think we need to cover, and I really look forward to diving deep into some more other side topics that are related to the MPAA going forward. Yeah, exactly. And I do want to say, we never mentioned this. I do want to say we have merchandise for the podcast, and that is on Public. That's right. Also Wicked Hot Top. That is right. That is right. <laughs> yes. So guys, buy those t-shirts subscribe to us follow us on on itunes on google play stitcher radio spotify and on instagram and twitter again as always guys it is a pleasure for us to bring you this sweet sweet content every two weeks so once again we'll see you in two weeks on another episode of wicked hot movie mayhem bye everybody bye